market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special and very surprising, we know, Sunday mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips and with me is the doctor, Dr. Anirban Mahanti. How are you, buddy? Good morning. I'm very good. Welcome to the special, <laughs> regular. Yeah, you're getting in the... You know, you're getting special, in the, regular mailbag edition. I think you just like giving me grief about calling it special is what I think is going on here. Well, I think special is fine. <laughs> It's just oh, very, it's that's a, all I said. That's all I it's said. It's a very regular. It mailbag. is regular, but regularly special. Regularly special. I like that. <laughs> I'll take that. We only do mailbag once a week. That's special. Come on. Well, that's Aren't true. There, are, there, are there TV programs you kind of wait for that, you know? Remember the good old days? A Team used to be on Monday nights at 7 30. It was the one night of the week I was allowed to stay up when I was a kid. I look forward to Monday nights all week. So you're saying this is the equivalent? This is the equivalent of the A Team. That's right. I think okay. that makes. Do you, did you watch the A Team when you were a kid? No. Oh, there you go. I, I'm a big Hannibal fan, Hannibal Smith. Love it when a plan comes together. That's only going to work for a few of our audience, but it's worth it for those who enjoyed it. So there you go, A-Team, with the soldiers of fortune. I'm going to move on. <laughs> That's a random tangent. You started that one. All right, let's get a question from Nathan. Nathan says, i got a question from the po- for question for the pod. Hi, Scott and Doc. I'm a big fan of the pod and love your work. Thank you, mate. It's nice to have found a couple of blokes with as much contempt for the RBA as me. <clears throat> there you go. I, uh, Nathan, I think Doc has more. Well, Doc has much more contempt for the RBA, almost by definition. No one has more contempt for the RBA than Doc. I'm not quite as contemptuous, <laughs> but certainly I would do something different. Uh, Nathan says, if someone had told you in 2010, with a cash rate just under five percent, that it'd be near zero by the end of the decade, you'd swear the 2010s were an economically tough period. In reality, it was pretty healthy. We just took a heap of medicine. Then 2020 hit, and we actually got sick. I like that. That's pretty good. Um, I think it's a good example. You know. I, Quick, very quick editorial. Mm. For all of everything that's done, and again, you have we have our views on the RBA. Yours, yours is a bit more cynical than mine. Um, I've got to say, I I feel like the RBA is still fighting the GFC. I feel like the rate cuts from five to zero, as Nathan says, in the context of what's otherwise a relatively healthy economy, and we're not firing all cylinders, but we're not, you know, we're not declining at multi- double digit rates. The sort of emergency stuff that has been done, you would swear has been done. And again, even pre-COVID, right? So pre-COVID, fine. Nathan mentions that as well. But to the end of 2019, the rate cuts over the previous 10 years when the economy is actually growing, I don't know, mate. It it seems like there was a lot of preemptive medicine with probably the RBA and and frankly central banks around the world fighting the last war. That's, That's a bit that frustrates me. Yeah, well, that's exactly what I've been saying for a long time. I would yeah. fire the RBA governors, and then they would, I'd appoint myself. And then, you know, I'd, hey, here's the promise, right? I'll take much less salary. Um, that, how, much, how much would you run the RBA for? What's your, what's your, well, what's your would, over-under? Oh, 200K. 200K, there you go. 250K, there maybe. You go. Like, you know. Josh Frydenberg, Scott Morris, if you're listening, save a fortune for the taxpayer. Yeah. Like, doc for, doc that's for very RBA easy. Governor. Just book the rates back up at 3%. Oh, it's constant. Dear. Mate, you'll have your, you will be attacked in the streets. Imagine all the mortgage holders defaulting because rates go to 3%. Well, good. What about all those people? They can, okay, here's the thing, right? If you can't pay a mortgage at 2.5%, yes. you shouldn't have that mortgage. I Period. I, like, I, that's, that's it. You, you didn't deserve to have that mortgage. I'm going to skip to the end of the question where Nathan says in brackets, apologies for the lengthy intro. And, I just needed to get Doc fired up on this and, one. And, and, and <laughs> it worked. Like, I mean, you know, like, I mean, come on. You can't, if you, like, and what about all those people, you know, those people who would actually afford the mortgage at 2.5%, they uh-huh. should buy the properties they're going to be selling at 50% discount. That's the way it should work. Like, I, I don't know. I, I think this is bizarre. I, I just You sound like a man who wants to have a whole lot of property paint so you can go and buy a property. Am I right? No, no, no. So it's not... It's not <laughs> I, okay, so I 
am a big proponent for good mm-hmm. use of capital. Yep. And I detest poor use of capital. <laughs> like it just drives me bananas. Um, you know, poor use of capital is basically trying to keep exactly what Nathan has said. It's basically <laughs> keeping sick stuff that's like basically dead, not breathing alive. That just doesn't help. It just is a whole heap of costs. Somebody's going to pay the cost eventually. <laughs> Right, and you know, it could be us, <laughs> could be our children, could mm. be our children's children. Somebody mm. is going to pay, right? So, Very funny. there's that. Very funny. All right, there you go, Nathan. You got Doc fired up. Well done. And we haven't even finished the question because you got the question now, which is my question Is it possible central banks will at some point be forced to raise rates? I know they've sworn off it in the near term, but could it occur out of a lesser of two evils type scenario? You guys mentioned currency debasing, for example. If so, how would that impact different asset prices and what would be least affected? Blue chip shares, property, infrastructure, doc stocks, I like that, doc stocks, etc. And he says, apologies for the lengthy intro. I needed to get Doc fired up to answer this one. Hashtag get Doc on the RBA. Cheers, Nath. Nath, thank you, mate. We've, uh, we've certainly enjoyed the conversation so far. There's a, probably a bit more coming. Doc, is it possible central banks will be forced to raise rates? And if they do, what's going to be least impacted? Yeah, so like, okay, like I don't want to paint a doomsday scenario, but... Too late, uh, you already have. (laughs) (laughs) So here's the thing, right? Yeah. The rate card is a relative game. Yeah. So you play the relative game. The problem is that when, (laughs) when, if and when, the bigger central banks of the world push their rates up, Mm. that actually has a negative impact here, Mm. right? Because it increases the cost of borrowing. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether or not RBI likes it or not, it does increase the cost of borrowing, <laughs> right? So, um, and and that's going to have a negative impact then at that point um, on how people think about our currency. So th- those are things, and I think like a lot of things are possible. I don't think anybody is going to. I really believe that rates are not going to go up because they just can't. <laughs> because you know, it's like if you're stuck in an asset bubble. How do you get out of that asset bubble? That's the, yeah. I think, that, you know, there's an asset bubble that has been stoked and the problem is you can't get out of that asset bubble very easily. Yeah. Um, the benign scenario that I think um, RBA would probably be hoping for is that if we can just get through this in, you know, 10 years without <laughs> causing bigger troubles, then it's fine. And, and most people who are making those decisions, you know, they probably think if this doesn't happen in my period, that's mm, fine. Mm. And I move on. Um so I think, yeah, it's a little bit of short-sightedness. A lot of things can happen. I mean, you know, you don't need, uh, your currency could debase, you could have very mm. high inflation, um, you know, you could have defaults. Lots of things can happen as it happened in the past in other places. So, yeah, again, nobody would know the answer for this because mm. this is not going to be immediately evident. But it's just, I think it's just overall bad policy. Again, if you can't do something, that people can't borrow 2.5%. And they can't borrow, you know, like anything, yeah, yeah. right? And uh, I think, you know, an overall very high focus on mortgages and building and property is is a little bit of a poor use of capital in many mm-hmm. ways, right? You know, um, I mean, that's one source of capital, but you know, being too obsessed with it. Like, it seems like the entire decision making is just based on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to create this so that, you know, um, that asset bubble can be maintained. If that asset bubble is maintained, then people are going to spend... Um, and you know it's it's very old school, nineteen hundreds thinking. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a. I think you mentioned on the Friday podcast, Doc, that you know we talked about growth stocks. We talked about you know not looking at the market. I have a sense that I mean, you can't avoid 
Well, I mean, Nathan, it kind of depends on what happens next, right? It depends on what interest rates cause or what cause interest rates. And I think that's the hard part. Generally speaking, all else being equal, if we're saying higher, higher interest rates just mean lower discount rates, then every asset gets impacted effectively the same way. Ironically, except those that don't produce an income. So if you're not valuing a, an asset on, on its cash flows, then that's pure speculation. But by the same token, that's obviously where they get this impact because you're not discounting anything back. Um, the present value of future cash flows is the is the maths that underpin share prices. If you if you don't, if you don't have any cash flows, you're not likely to. Uh, then there's no impact, I suppose. So that that's one uh, version of it. Now, if you're thinking gold, I guess I'm thinking gold too. But I, I don't know that's necessarily the great way to go. But um, that that's that would be you know what you might think about. Um, I think. You generally speaking, if you say higher interest rates, it's probably related to higher inflation. Generally speaking, either because or, or after or during correlated causation, take your pick. Um, you want something with pricing power or, or, or pure growth. So, doc stocks, absolutely. Uh, if you find a company that can double, it's it's. I, I look back at say um, Apple's a great example during the GFC. Right, everything went to pot except for businesses like Apple that simply were still on the adoption curve and still on the growth curve and that that was a if you're creating new services people want or new devices people are prepared to pay for if you can remain top of mind or be one of those services or products people just simply saying you know what i'll cut back on this but i won't cut back on my iphone purchase or i'll buy the airpods because they're great or i'll you know buy it from the app store because it's cheap whatever whatever you can kind of get growth out of despite the economic circumstance even a business so here's, here's one doc which is a really left field one um, we talk about buy now pay later a lot these days flexi group uh, was behind the Certigy Easy Pay, which is the world's worst brand. Um, uh, so basically, that kind of interest-free Harvey Norman purchases stuff, right? During the GFC, they grew like a weed because they became more relevant to more customers. So even though the economic activity was down, they were signing up new chains, new stores, new chains, new stores. So they actually got secular growth in a cyclical downturn. So that's one thing I'd probably look at, Nathan, is businesses that have growth ahead of them, um, almost almost despite the the economic downturn or, or potentially inflation or whatever whatever it is that comes with that. And again, we don't really know what comes with higher interest rates. That's the hard part. The other thing I'd probably say, Doc, is is generally speaking, and this is kind of a back to a buffetism, so the opposite of of the of the hyper growth story, is you want businesses with pricing power. So if we do see interest rates up, in theory that comes with inflation, you want a business that can raise prices to protect itself against inflation. And so if you're not buying hyper growth stocks or you're not buying small stocks with lots of secular growth, but you buy more mature businesses, make sure they're the ones with pricing power because you don't want to be in a situation where prices are going up, costs are going up, but businesses can't raise prices because either their market is too competitive or because their brand doesn't have enough uh, opportunity to raise those prices. So that's why I think about more mature businesses. Again, assuming higher rates come with higher inflation or vice versa. If it doesn't, then I guess, you know, it's, it's an open question as to what happens next. But that's that's the way I'd, I'd start to think about some of that. Anything more on that one, Doc? Um, no, the, the other thing I would think about is um, asset diversification, right? So a couple of different yeah, things nice to think one. about. Um, it is useful to think about if you if somebody is really worried about that is uh, to have some international assets, hold international assets. Mm-hmm. And that will work in your favor because yeah. if rates are, you know, if there's high mm-hmm. inflation and our dollar basically tanks, um, then, mm-hmm. you know, you know, basically currency debasing, if there's currency debasing, then um, having assets in another currency that is not as debased mm-hmm. will probably help you um, because of just c- currency factors. That's the other thing I would think about. Mm, awesome. Um, I think it's probably likely that rates go up generally universally. I can't imagine the RBA goes up without the rest of the world going up in that scenario. It'd be a remarkable situation if we had rates of 1.5% in the US and Europeans rates stayed low. Yeah, like I mean, that's that's true, but there could be, um, you know, 
like if you think about individual scenarios that are specific to Australia, for example, you know, like mm. the the high debt load in Australia is very specific to Australia, right? Mm. It's mm. not it's not that it is uh, the norm. Mm. That is not the norm. So if there are if there are individual local economic um, events, then having assets in different currencies actually mm. helps. Mm. Nice, thank you, mate. Um, good question, Nathan. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. Let's go to a question from Ashman's Davor. What do you think, or Davor? D-A-V-O-R. Davor, can I go with Davor? Yeah, Davor. Davor. Davor, if I mispronounce your name, I do apologise, mate. Um, question says, hey, Scott and Doc, long-time listener, first-time questioner. Thanks for all your hard work making us an inexpensive, making us, sorry, making an inexpensive podcast for all of us, I think he means. You're welcome. Inexpensive I like, mate, rather than cheap. Thank you very much, Davor. You've been listening. Thank you, mate. Um, inexpensive and, and great value. Great value. I have a situation, he says, that has come up and I haven't been able to find an answer anywhere. It has to do with dividend reinvestment plans or DRPs. I've subscribed to a DRP of a well-known company that has recently cut its dividend. But whenever shares are issued it, there's always a little change left over, which the company keeps in trust for you until you accumulate enough to get another share at a future DRP. Now, let me let me just break that down a little bit. So what can happen, you get 100 bucks worth of dividends and let's say shares are 40 bucks each. They'll buy you two shares, so 80 bucks, and they'll leave $20 in that DRP account and apply that to the next purchase so the next time the dividends are paid they add that 20 bucks to it now you've got 140 dollars to buy shares and so on and so forth so 120 dollars so so on and so forth so they basically keep the leftover cash he's saying but um my question is what happens to that money when or if you sell the shares i know it's not a lot but in the completely unlikely scenario that the shares run up in price significantly a la tesla there could be more than change in that account hope that makes sense full on Dave. so i guess that's true i mean if a if your your forty dollars share becomes a thousand dollars share, I guess you could have nine hundred ninety dollars worth of dividend DRP cash that isn't used, and so uh, at some point, I mean, Tesla's actually split their shares in the meantime. But conceptually, you know, let's take Berkshire or Apple or something, something with you know multi thousand dollar share price. Amazon, um, I guess you could have you know you could have thirty two hundred bucks in an Amazon um, DRP account that never never gets used. And you'd lose that whole thing if the DRP didn't go through. Now we're talking about uh, Australia, I assume, and, and the DRPs here are different to the US. So let's let's break that down. Um, the answer, Dave, or does depend, unfortunately, on the individual company's rules. Um, I had a look at a couple of companies. Westpac, for example, um, treat, <laughs> assumes in, in, its, in its plan rules, trust me, that out, man, assumes in its plan rules that you're making a donation to the Westpac Foundation or the St. George Foundation. Um, so they use it, they don't, they don't keep the money in the company coffers. But basically, if you had, I don't know, five bucks left in the DRP kind of cash carryover account and you sold your Westpac shares, they donate it to their own charity and use it for charitable works. Um, generally speaking, mate, I don't know of any plan that actually gives you the money back, unfortunately. So that's the bad news. Um, as you say, it's unlikely, it's not a lot of cash. Um, but it's worth thinking about to the extent that you are going to take advantage of a DRP and you may not you know, hold for it forever. Um, but I guess as long as the company's individual share price is less than, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 bucks, um, the money you're dusting is probably not terrible. And as long as the company uses it for some good, that can be useful. I'm sure there are other companies out there, by the way, who just simply take the money, by the way. So um, don't assume they're all going to be donated to charity. Um, the larger the company, the more likely it is that you're putting it to some positive use. But yes, you're dead right. You may lose access to that money. Doc, any thoughts? Oh, I would just scrap DRPs altogether, but that's a different point altogether. You wouldn't take part? No, I would just make it illegal to have DRPs. 
four companies. <laughs> okay, there we go. That's a whole different story. <laughs> so, um, if it, I know you usually have a Tesla as a US stock. In the US, DRPs are actually run by the broker, not by the company. Uh, and they also have fractional shares. So that you don't have that issue in the US. In this case, the DRPs are run by the companies themselves. Doc, I assume your, uh, your rationale is because they're issuing more shares using... Yeah, so, so a couple of rationales. Right? One is that DRP is basically a silent dilution, yeah. right? Uh, I absolutely detest that. Because they, they, don't, they don't... So this is one of those things people, people may assume or maybe don't think about it. But if you, if you have a DRP reinvestment plan, they don't take your 40 bucks and buy a share on the market for you. They create a new share with that dividend reinvestment plan. If, if I don't know, 20, 30, 40% of the, of the shareholders take part in that, then let's say 40% of a 5% dividend yield, you've effectively got the best part of 3%, 2.5%, 2% being diluted every single year as that money is used to create new shares. You know what I like to say? The Federal Reserve of the US learned about quantitative easing from Commonwealth Bank, SPAC, <laughs> and NAB, right? So this is exactly, this is a perfect example of quantitative easing. <laughs> Monetary money, money printing, nobody knows that it's been happening. I love it. But you know, that's what happened, you know? It's, yeah, a good point. I mean, everyone does know, but then no one actually thinks about it, right? I think that's the that's what might be more insidious. It's not hidden. It's completely in public view, but no one cares. So that was one reason. Why else don't you like DRPs? Oh, that's that's one big reason. The second is like you know, this is uh, companies are basically having to administer this. There's administrative cost to this. Mm. Companies are just supposed to run their company, not administer shareholding and ownership, <laughs> creation yeah, of more yeah, shares. Yeah. They should do that infrequently. This is basically just you know what I call bogus stuff that they shouldn't be doing. So yeah, that's my advice. Take my advice for free. Just kill the. <laughs> Piece. I'm going to um, I'm going to editorialize just slightly. I think it's one of those situations where the individual psychology. I talk about psychology every second podcast. The psychology is the company's helping me. I get to buy more shares at a discount. Uh, it, it seems easier, and, and and those things are all kind of true in, in as much as they're true. Um, the impact we don't necessarily always see, though, and I think that's to Doc's point. Unless you think about that second order of, but hang on, what's this actually, what is this actually doing to my shareholding or what is it actually doing to the company? That's where, you, you know, it's so easy to think, well, I'm getting new shares or free shares or extra shares. So that can't be bad, surely. And that's where people stop their thinking. So it's important to think about DRPs in that context. I'll add another one, Doc, which is just simply on a company by company basis. It's really unlikely the company whose DRP you enrolled in is going to be your best idea for that cash when the dividend's paid, right? Yeah, so that's absolutely agree. If I get yeah. 500 bucks worth of dividends over the next six months, for example, I can have them reinvest automatically in the 10 companies that I own. But what's the chance that the eighth, ninth, and tenth best company are actually worth putting that money into? I could put the five hundred bucks into my best idea or a new idea. Um, and so, yes, DRPs are simple; they're easy, and that's how they're sold. Um, and they're not terrible things. I'm, I'm a little less critical than you are, doctors, generally speaking. But in this case as well, um, you know, is it dilution? Yeah, as long as everyone's equally diluted, it's kind of not a big deal either way. It's it's it is what it is. You know, everyone's kind of getting diluted in the same proportions. I agree with you, by the way. They should buy the shares on markets. That's a I do agree with you in that sense. Um, but for me, it's from an investing results perspective. I, I'm pretty sure if you're half good at investing. You're best to take that money and put it in your best idea. And by the way, if you're not that half good at investing, then I guess buy an index, right? And do it that way rather than rather than being being kind of, you know, lulled into buying your I mean, imagine you've got twenty companies in your portfolio. You can be literally putting money into your twentieth best idea. Now, if I said to you, hey, here's hundred bucks, which company you want to invest it in, you wouldn't say, Oh, I'll invest it equally across the the my, all my twenty companies, or I'm gonna I'm gonna buy my twentieth best idea with that money. And yet that's what DRPs kind of lull us into the the sense of doing. So there you go, Dave. I hope it helps. All right, Doc, got a question from an Instagram account. Oh, you love Instagram. I love Instagram. This is Blonde Horizons on Insta. Hey, Scott, love your podcast. Hashtag stroking your egos. Thank you very much. I see what you did there. I'm an EO subscriber. Thanks, Doc. Oh, come on. Oh, here we go. And we'll even the field and join Share Advisor if you read my question, Scott. Hashtag cheap. Now, I'm not saying I read the question just because you'll join, but 
let's just say I want proof of joining. So just flick us through a note on Instagram. Let's show, show, show me that. Show that nothing. Don't give me credit card details, of course, but show me the receipt. Uh, you got to prove it now. You've you made the offer. I expect you to come good on this Blonde Horizons. All right. Uh, it says I started in share investing in April. Excellent. Congratulations. And now have a nicely diversified portfolio of seventeen ATX companies. That's brilliant. Well done. Really, really cool. Fantastic time to start, by the way, Doc. That's pretty much almost picking the bottom. So yeah, I know. hopefully hopefully it's been a good journey so far. It won't always be that good, so don't get too lulled into a false sense of security. Be ready for volatility. Uh, but that is awesome, mate. Starting in April, 17 companies, well done. All right. Now, Blunt Horizon says, I'd like to get your thoughts on players in the EV ecosystem. I think this question's for me, Doc. I'm, I'm, I'm the EV guy here. That's electric vehicles, by the way, just in case you didn't know. Um, <laughs> in the EV ecosystem and supply chain, specifically with Tesla's recent contract with ASX company Piedmont Lithium and Schaeffler with Hastings Technology Metals. These rare earth energy players seem key, yet appear to be very undervalued. Why is that? Or are they just under the radar? Keep up the entertaining banter and the straight shooting advice. Well, thank you, Blonde Horizons. We will absolutely do our best to do exactly that. In the meantime, Doc, even though I'm the EV expert here, let's, I'll ask you, mm. um, what do you think about people in the EV supply chain like lithium players, Piedmont Lithium and Hastings Technology Metals? Okay, so I'll give an analogy. Uh, and uh, answer is an anal- analogy, right? So um, Apple makes iPhones. Mm-hmm. Um, it... Uh, uh, you know, uh, uses it builds its own chip. Mm-hmm. Let's say it builds uh, every year. It is going to build maybe two hundred million odd chips, yep. right? Um, it's going to make two hundred odd, two hundred fifty million odd phones mm-hmm. and a bunch of other things, right? For that, it's going to use a lot of different raw materials and it's going to you know outsource uh, some of the uh, you know manufacturing and things like that. Do you mm-hmm. buy the manufacturer or do you buy Apple? Mm-hmm. Right, that's sort of the analogy I would use use here. Value typically Tesla's ex- to some degree the manufacturer though as well. In, in an yeah. EV sense, the, 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 there is no Apple equivalent, right? Am I, am I right? Generally, I mean, you, you, the, you know, Tesla is Apple plus Foxconn, or, or plus its plus its you know manufacturing base. Yes. Okay. Right now, so like, yeah, it's a little bit a little bit of a stretched analogy, but I don't do, point, do me a question yeah. analogy. I just want to understand kind of what the implication was. Yeah. So the implication really is that the the value for most things accrues to the final product, mm. right? You know, whoever is building the final product. So the closer you get to the customer, the more likely the... Yeah, the closer to the customer, right, as, okay. you'd, as you'd say. Um, so the raw materials, ultimately raw materials are priced by what the price of it is in the market. That mm. is a function of supply and demand. As the demand goes mm-hmm. up, there's going to be more supply coming online. So you really are going to make money on the margins, right? Whereas yeah. if, you, if you're building a car with technology or you're building other things with technology uh, with a branding, then, mm. you know, those things you can, you have some amount, degree of what you were calling pricing power, right? Mm-hmm. You can price it accordingly. So my preference always is to invest in that sense, upstream, yeah, right. not downstream. Yeah. Um, and then not worry too much about cycles and things like that. And, you know, whether or not this is the cheapest producer and things like that. It could be a, a, a lithium miner, if it is the cheapest one, could actually be fantastic. Like mm. it could mm. be the Fortescue equivalent. Um, but again, it's also not my skill set to really look at and figure out whether or not it is the Fortescue equivalent mm, in, in mm. the lithium world. Um, but yeah, it's great that they have a contract here, which is good for them. But that's, I don't know much about that company other than that. Mate, I'm curious as to your thoughts on, so you're obviously a massive Tesla bull and I imagine you would say to Blonde Horizons just open a US brokerage account by Tesla. So let, let's assume that's that's priority one. 
Is are there Australian EV exposed businesses that you'd like? Are there any that are worth investing? Uh, there's a couple of battery companies here. Um, What's well, not really EV so much? I suppose probably just generally generally <laughs> battery storage. But um, if you think about kind of the, the Tesla esque space, is there anywhere in Australia you're kind of interested in from a, for an EV or a battery or a solar or a you know if I kind of throw the Tesla umbrella over it and say which which companies in that space are interesting, if any. Um, there isn't much like I mean, I mean here's the thing right there isn't anything Tesla equivalent anywhere in the world right mm-hmm. I mean so but in that industry are there EV or battery or there's nothing really like I mean there's yeah. there's a company called Redflow which does um, I think fuel cell style right. batteries they're in South Australia uh, I think aren't they huh? they're in South Australia I think, South Redflow. Australia yeah. yeah like again like uh, there's a lot of issues. There's a funny thing about scale, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of these things require a technology to be mature enough, and then you to have scale. Um, mm. And it, that's there's a heap of luck, timing, mm. and heap of capital at availability at the right time at the right place, right? You know, so in, in so that th- that's happened with Tesla. Tesla mm-hmm. is sort of mm-hmm. what I'd call past that chasm where mm. you could fail because you know well they were at the yeah, right, right time with the right technology with the right sort of product roadmap that has enabled them to sort of grow right and then now they can grow sustainably the other others have to get yeah, there yeah. which is much harder so i don't know like nothing i mean that you, is, nothing you're saying that you like particularly no like i mean there's like mm. I, I think that the closest equivalent i see mm. is sort of in the buy now pay later so that's a completely different segment <laughs> yeah, massively different. it's a massively <laughs> different segment but yeah that like the, the analogy there would be like you know if uh, Tesla what Tesla is to cars mm. uh, and autonomy yeah um, you know you could say the buy now pay later segment is the same to banking and okay, yeah, nice. um, and retail transactions I right did there. so <laughs> so like you know again there is nothing in that sector mm. if if you, you if you're interested in ESG and uh, you know then Tesla mm. is but you know you, there is nothing here but that mm. doesn't mean that mm. there's mm. there aren't other things. Nice. Um, I like that, mate. I'm going to add to your initial thoughts uh, for Blonde Horizons here just to say that you want to be really, really careful with thematic investing when you start to go too far off the reservation on this stuff. And I think I'm thinking particularly here about um, – so oil is a great analogy. If you'd have said to somebody in – I don't know, when was the first Wildcat strike? Early 1900s, I want to say, in the US. So let's let's call it 100-ish years ago. Let me, let me be very vague and broad, but don't hold me to the details. Um if you'd have said to somebody, what will happen is this stuff that they found in the ground, they used to use whale oil and other things. Now, all of a sudden, they found this thing called oil or what if we called it at the time, motor oil, and it will be used to effectively power the world's economy over the next 100 years. And during that time, the economy will grow to multiples of its current size and all the things. If you, if you could see 2020 from back there and said oil will make most of this possible literally and figuratively, you know, in terms of uh, it literally will power some of the stuff and it'll, it'll kind of be the, the, the start of the spark that allows a lot of stuff to happen. Imagine how much money you'd make buying oil, oil wells and, and oil companies. The simple reality is oil's basically just kept up with inflation over 100 years. Um, and that's because, and you kind of alluded to this, Doc, with the lithium story, more players have come into the market, more oil has been found, it's got cheaper to drill, cheaper to access, cheaper to transport. So despite the fact that we have, and, and to our environmental um, cost, unfortunately, you know, cars, trucks, buses, planes, ships, all using oil derivatives to get around the place, other than Tesla, of course, although arguably some of it's being fund, uh, fueled by, uh, by, by uh, coal energy through the, through the PowerPoint. Um, but generally speaking, you know, even if you exclude that stuff, Oil has been such a phenomenal and integral part of our economic 
growth. And yet, oil itself has hardly kept up with inflation. That's because supplies expand at the same pace as demand. And that's where we talk about commodities. And we talk about commodities in two ways. A commodity is something like oil or iron or gold or something that's easily replicable. Um, doesn't You can't differentiate between the two. But we also use commodity to basically mean in investing circles not very good pricing power, easily easily replaceable, substitutable, not very good value, all that stuff. You know, a commodity product, a commodity business is generally a bad investment. And I would absolutely say that's true for oil. It's been true for almost everything. Now, you made the, the Fortescue example, Doc, and you're right. If you can produce, and iron is kind of at the other end of its cycle, right? Like the, the, at the moment, iron ore is the, is, the, is the realm of the mega, mega, mega producers. And that, by the way, they're also very geographically favorably placed because Iron ore is often called a uh, a, a, a logistics business with a with a mine at the end, because if you can get a ton a ton of iron ore to China for forty bucks, um, just imagine a ton of stuff being you know dug up, shipped, <laughs> refined, put in a train, put in a boat for forty bucks a ton a ton of the stuff. Um, it goes to show exactly how cheap and commoditized this is. So, look. I get the idea of saying Tesla's big, EV is the future, therefore I'll buy lithium. I think that'll end up being a mistake for the most part. There might be one or two lithium miners that maybe do okay. Um, same with all rare earths, by the way. I think the, the maths of there will be more lithium consumed in 20 years' time is an easy one. The maths of will that mean there's extra profits to be made by lithium miners, that's a much, much, much harder decision to, to come to. And I would encourage, particularly young new investors, young investors. But I mean, in terms of experience, not necessarily age, uh, just to be careful of extrapolating too much from the idea that the the theme is real. Therefore, the companies will make money. That's often, um, maybe mostly, more often than not, um, a, a mistake that you can make. Look for the companies. The doctor already said that are closer to the end product. They can charge the margin because you know if you think about it, Apple is able to take those raw materials and charge a premium for the raw materials because of the way it puts them together. And I don't mean literally puts them together. I mean the way it turns them into a product that has super value for users around the world. That's how you add value. That's how you get profit margins, right? Um, you don't get you don't get margins because your particular silica goes into the Gorilla Glass or your particular, I don't know, aluminium goes into the casing, right? No one cares what the aluminium is. What you care about is that Apple takes that aluminium and makes something interesting out of it compared to Coke that makes an aluminium can. Same aluminium. Where's the pricing power? It's in the Coke brand. It's in the Apple brand. It's in the product um, at, the, at the very end of the supply chain. Anything else on that? No, sir. Good question, though, Blonde Horizons. And super congratulations for starting in April of having 17 companies. Really, like we say, get to 15 as quickly as you can. You've nailed that in, what, six months. Brilliant. Oh, that's Absolutely brilliant, mate. Well brilliant, done. yeah. Congratulations. All right, question from Sean. Now, Sean was the, the correspondent who I referred to as Holden SL, SS5L last time. And I did assume it might have been a uh, Holden SS5 leader. It turns out I was right. I'll get to that. Uh, Sean says, hey, Scott, listen to the Sunday mailbag this morning. Flattered I made the podcast. Mate, it's our pleasure. I know it's hard for SA and EO, that share advisor and extreme opportunities, the services Doc and I run, to work out per annum returns. <coughs> Excuse me. Because of the constantly adding nature of it. And we'll get to that in a minute. But I've just been trying to gauge where we will end up roughly with our contributions long term using a compound interest calculator. If you were to work out an approximate return for SANEO, what would you say it would be? I know it's market beating, but trying to work out roughly by how much. Thanks, Sean. He says, oh yeah, you got it right, Holden SL SS5 leader, although I have more control over my spending these days and practice delayed gratification. I still love cars, 
but making I'm making investing our priority, mate. That's pretty cool. So, uh, good on you. Uh, I do love a Holden SS. I've got to say, it's a, I'm a bit of an abogan in me somewhere. Uh, I had a uh, I didn't have an SS. I had an SV uh, Holden station wagon a few cars ago, which I loved. So I, I, I share the passion, mate. I'm um, also just as in passing, pretty sad to see the end of Holden at, at uh, Bathurst, but that's just my thing. Value stocks, market, stock market, index, share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, let's go to Sean's question, Doc. Um, oh, mate, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna to handball this to you for your first go and then I'll add my thoughts because <laughs> I can. Okay, uh, it's a great question. Actually, you know, <laughs> uh, had I looked at this question before, I would have come... Uh, a little bit more prepared. So yes, the in theory. Are you trying to tell us as we don't do hours of preparation for this podcast? We don't do hours. This is radio. It's all the smoke this is and mirrors, all mate. Impromptu stuff that you get. Um, you know, and, and that's why <laughs> you know, every time I'm fumbling in Scott is basically <laughs> Scott is basically just fixing what I'm fumbling on. Not so, at all, not at all. So, so that's what. Okay. So here's the short answer. I actually don't know. Mm. So what he's asking for is look our scorecards. So our scorecard are very transparent. They report the buy price. Yep. Um, in, in the EOS case, for example, EOS stocks uh, recommendations come out at at midday. Yes. Now we take the price at the end of the day. Um, uh, so if there's a pop, we bear that pop. Uh, SA comes out at the end of the day. We take the price at the end of next day. So yes. whatever pop is there yes. at the next day when people are buying, that's also incorporated. We get that price. Then the price gets adjusted for dividends if there are dividends over time. Um, and then if then we have the current price and we're calculating returns and we're doing exactly the same calculations for the index, nice. right? And the index in this case is Sorry, the uh, is the ASX All Ordinaries, okay? And then we basically present our average returns. Um, if you wanted to compute, uh, so a couple, okay. So you could, one easy way to compute return would be to compute, say, what I'd call um, a money-weighted, um, internal rate of return or money weighted compound return mm-hmm. uh, you could calculate that using a spreadsheet mm-hmm. um, basically you could assume a you know equal investment yep. and and then basically you have the return data there and you could compute whatever that uh, money weighted return or internal rate of return would be mm-hmm. um, I actually haven't done it uh, we could do it um, but I'll caveat a couple of things here it's going to be impacted by a few things right um Number one, like I could compute the return from since inception. That's not going to be your return. Your return is going to be there from the time when you are investing, right? Mm-hmm. That's number one. Uh, our return would be computed based on an assumption that you're investing in everything uh, in equal proportions, right? Because this is not really a recommendation about allocations and sizes. So there's that aspect. Um, uh, off the top of my head, I think we are getting good um, you know, compound returns, but I can't give you exactly what the number would be without calculating. Mm, and mm. again, that would be very specific from since inception data. Mm, mm. Um, and I don't know how meaningful it would be uh, versus, you know, what we already got. I mean, what we have already yeah. got gives us a ballpark uh, idea. I mean, another way to think about this is that, you know, if, for example, if the market return is um, whatever average, and then uh, our return is said twice that, and if the market delivered seven percent, mm. then twice that is fourteen percent. That's another way to think about it, right? Mm, mm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, roughly, that's one way to do it. Um, 
And why don't we provide it? Well, because there are, again, we could provide internal rate of return or, you know, money weighted mm-hmm. return. Then somebody's going to ask for time weighted return. Mm-hmm. Um, and average is just another way to look at a return. Somebody could say, mm-hmm. take away all the winners and look at the returns of the losers and so on and so forth. So there are many different ways to skin and analyze. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have one that I think captures roughly I think that it directionally it captures mm-hmm. performance, which is why we provide that. But it's, it's, it's again, a directional measure in my view. Mm. I think that's right, mate. I think, uh, sure, I mean, kind of much to what Doc said, the, the hardest part is even if you use things like money-weighted rate of return, the idea that we would start any portfolio with just one stock and then diversify it by one more stock one month later and that that should therefore kind of re- represent the overall portfolio's performance for two months, um, you know, Look, over, over 10 years, it probably doesn't matter all that much, but the, the, the numbers would be dramatically weighted by the fact we went from one stock to two to four, three to four to five to 12 to 24 to 48. It, it, would, it would imply there was effectively some, you know, um, diversification away from that individual first stock, the way the maths works out. It just kind of doesn't work that way. Um, but that's the way the scorecard has to work. It's exactly why we actually just use a numeric average rather than anything else because it's just too bloody hard. And as you've, as you've kind of highlighted yourself, I mean, share advice has now been going for, well, we had our first recommendation in December 2011. So we're not miles away from our ninth birthday and only a year or so away from our 10th. Um, you know, over that time, you know, the stock that is, our oldest buy recommendation that's still a buy recommendation was issued on in September 2012. Our newest one was issued about a week ago. And so how do you take the average of those two and work out some sort of annualized basis? Um, in fact, as, as it works out, our last our last stock is actually down literally 3% as we speak, which is nothing, right, in the overall scheme of things. But if I annualize that, that's a 36% fall over 12 months. So all of a sudden, hang on, how much is the portfolio down? Well, of course, that's not real. Um, and then, by the way, with the same token, six months ago, one of our stocks up 125%. Is that really an annualized 250% because you double it for to make it 12 months? No, of course it's not. Um, so look, it, it's just it's just not super relevant. I know you want to return. Here's what I'd say, Sean, is it really doesn't matter what we've done other than as a, a demonstration, hopefully, that we can pick market-beating stocks. So let me, let me share a couple of things with you. First is that, let's start with Doc. Uh, extreme opportunities since 2017, mid-2017, the average recommendation is up 36%. The market's up eight over that time. That is an outperformance of 28 percentage points. So that's, let that sink in, by the way, for a second, because that's phenomenal. Uh, well done, Doc and Kevin, on that one. At Share Advisor, since inception, where our average recommendation is up 52%, the market's up 28 That's an outperformance of 23.5%. Now, it's been a reasonably... That, that 286 is actually a funny number. I would have expected the market to be up more over that period. If you'd asked me when we launched the service how much the market would be up, I would have said more than 28.6% over that, was it, not, almost nine-year period. So the, the question probably is not so much, well, if you're think, thinking forward to pr- try and give you a, a useful answer to your question, and Doc's already done that, so I'm just talking for the sake of it now. Uh, but to, to add meaningfully, hopefully, to that um, to that question, you really want to say, you know, what am I likely, is, is Share Advisor, is Extreme Opportunities beating the market? And do I think they will continue to? Maybe question mark. And then on top of that, what's the market likely to do? Because those are probably the two questions that matter. Now, as Doc said before, um, on Friday, I think it was, you don't have to invest in the whole market, so it's not overly relevant. But it, it's, I, if it was me, I'd be thinking about, okay, can these guys beat the market over time? So far, yes. Uh, we hope to continue to do it, but we can't give promises. But, you know, so far, yes. And if we do, then whatever the market return is, we should be able to do that by a little bit more than that, maybe a couple of percentage points a year if we're, if we're really good for a long period of time. So I want you to kind of think about that more than sort of what's our current form has been over that period of time because honestly, particularly at Share Advice, less so at EO, but um, you know, some of the companies we pick are mid and large cap companies. 
the sentiment on those and therefore the return on those over medium term periods of time probably has more to do with the market anyway. And so if the market goes up by a lot in the next three years, Asian will go up by a relative lot over that three years too. If the market's flat over the next three years, I don't expect that people will pay a whole lot more for some of the medium and large cap companies we recommend if sentiment is, is pretty negative. What I think over time though is you want to be investing in places that are going to beat the market. So if I was you, Sean, I'd be inclined to assume the market does something around what it's done in the past in future. So it's done an average of 10, 9, 10% over the last 100 years. Put that in a calculator, maybe assume we beat it by a couple of percentage points. If you think we can, if you don't think we can, don't do that. Um, so I'm not, again, not, not predicting here, not forecasting, and certainly not guaranteeing. That's how I think about it, mate. So no easy answer. Um, but like anything, if you're going to invest from scratch, if you go buy an ETF, you've got to pick a number. And uh, how much we beat the market by is, is probably, it's the, the delta I'd be focused on rather than the absolute numbers. Is that, does that sound reasonable, Doc? Is that I, I think it sounds very Can I just have an addendum to, so, to the market returns uh, stuff yeah, that yeah, you were talking about? So like, I, I think you mentioned like what, 28% for the average? In, in, uh, no, 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 the market's return. Oh, since, uh, since ShareAdvisor yeah. started, the, if, we'd have bought, if we'd have bought the, AA, the All Lords every month, the same way we've bought our own stocks, yeah. the average return would be a positive 28.6%. Okay. So th- this is how uh, I'll tell you, uh, I'll tell uh, Sean a way to think about that. So Share Advisor has been going around, um, on for nine years, right? Approximately. Mm-hmm. Because there is a stock added every month, yep. effectively, and there have been sales, so there's some variation of this, but assume <laughs> it's that- complex. <laughs> it's complex, but sometimes, you know, yep. uh, you know, you do these layers of simplification that yep. help you actually. So the average stock that has been held actually for four and a half years. Yes. That's so, the way. So the way you're doing that is you're saying the stock that's been for one month, the one that's been for nine years, average yeah. that's four and a half. Exactly. And the same is true for that was done eight and a half years ago, the one that's been yeah. held for half a year. Yeah. Now this is a ballpark yep. because yep. it probably is actually around maybe four yeah. years Probably because of the sales. Though. Yes, true. So basically the market has done about 28% mm-hmm. average returns yes. over four years. Yes. Which would work about to be what, about yeah. six, six and a half. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. by the time you compound it, yep. Yeah. So that's the way you can sort of look yep, at it. That's nice way to put it. And and then you can compare that. So you, you see, it it'll still work out to be that yeah. difference. Yeah, that you right, have, exactly. You yeah. Know, is, yeah. So so uh, then ShareAdvisor is doing roughly twelve. Mm-hmm. If this is doing six, yeah, maybe it, maybe eleven. Yeah, yep. yeah, something like that. Yep. But, so I mean, the other the other thing I'll point out is if you get five percentage points addition over buyings and ETF. For, so another mm-hmm. thing I'll clarify, you can't buy an ETF for ASX All Lords. You'd yes. land up buying ASX 300 as the yes. closest match. Yeah. They'll do maybe slightly worse than the All Lords because it wouldn't have the smaller components. So the gap will be farther uh, wider. Mm-hmm. But five percentage points difference over a period of let's say 10 years is actually humongous because every year yep. you're compounding that five, yes, right? Correct. So that's the other thing to keep in mind. Yeah. So those are the ways, a couple of ways, nice different mate. ways of thinking about it. Nice, mate. Well, yeah. Look, yeah, I, I, I guess my, this, it's, it's hard for me to say don't worry too much about it, mate, because I don't want to underestimate or undervalue our returns, nor do I want to be seen to be suggesting you shouldn't care or worry about it. Um, but I think if you, if you believe the market will continue to grow and compound over time, and I think it will, if you believe that our past performance may give us some chance of doing it better over the future than, than the market, then you can kind of, as Doc says, kind of almost start with a compound number and pick a number for the market, pick it out performance for us and use that as your compound. We can't promise it. You shouldn't absolutely rely on it. Past performance is no guarantee. I say that partly to keep the legal eagles happy, but partly because that's the reality, right? We don't want to overpromise the fool we never, ever do. Um, we'll do our level best to keep beating the market, frankly. And I will say, I think the vast, vast bulk of our services here in Australia, the vast bulk of our services in the US are market beating. I think there is something to our stock picking and our processes that seems to work more often than not. I think that's, again, no guarantees, but 
Um, we, I think David Gardner, our co-founder, kind of says, you know, passports is no guarantee. But he also says there's probably no other better way to think about the future than, you know, to some degree looking at the performance of the past and saying, well, if something's gone well then, isn't it likely that it'll continue? I think that's also probably arguably true and I'm deliberately hedging and, and trying to walk, walk this back a little bit because I'm trying to give you the sense that we've done it, we'll try and keep doing it, but I never ever want our members to rely on it or to see anything we say as a guarantee. Yeah, Scott will be one of the, the first persons who is going to caveat uh, <laughs> Correct. Uh, market return returns in many different ways, uh, the if this, if that. But, but yeah, he's. I think he's right. Uh, you know, but I'd, I'd say, is it plus five or plus three? Even plus three yeah, over totally. the market totally. is significant yeah. over it. Plus three percent seems nothing yeah. if you think about one year. Yeah. But if you compound it over 10 years, that's a lot. Um, so so that's that. And, uh, you know, like we say in investing, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, you know, you add to your winners over time. Yeah. Uh, it's the same sort of thing, you know. Uh, you want to back winning ideas and, and winning style or approach. Mm-hmm. And in our company, we have very different styles across the spectrum, right? We, totally. uh, you know, from uh, from you know dividend with franking to you know small cap to you know even micros to you know yep. a mix yep. of US yep. and um, uh, Australian stocks and yep. you know or if on average we're doing well, then we're doing something right. Uh, again, we make yep. no promises. So here, just talk, I've just done some really quick numbers. This is super rough because I've just grabbed a compound interest calculator. If we save with ten grand and invest it for thirty years and didn't add a single another dollar, so let's let's assume that's true for the sake of it. If you have, so 10 grand for 30 years at 7%, it's about 80 grand. At 9%, it's about 150 grand. Humongous difference. So you think about the difference in that. Now, the numbers actually get bigger as the numbers get bigger, right? So if I say at 10% for 30 years, that's almost 200K. If I make that 12%, that's more than 300, so about 350, close to $400,000. So, you know, the, the, the sheer dollar values of those yeah. get much larger as the compound numbers get larger. Now, I don't think you should use any of those numbers. Again, I'm not. <laughs> not saying anything specifically about what you should expect, uh, but you just get to say, now, if you add money regularly, uh, there's a whole lot of ways you can improve that number, of course. But the A, the reminder that compounding is literally the eighth wonder of the world, uh, and B, um, just you know, keep doing it. Do, do get the best result you can. We hope to give you a better one than the market, but either way, just just get in there, keep adding, keep investing. You know, I'll just say something, you know, maybe if we are killing this to that, but I'll say we something. <laughs> we are killing this to that. I'll say something, you know, here's, you know, everything that we do is rel- relatively simple, right? Yes, you, know, yes. you can take our jobs, which is which is not really a good feeling, but, you know, here's the thing, right? Number one, save. Yes. Number two, invest. Yep. Number three, ignore the short-term volatility. Uh-huh. And just repeat and rinse. And, and can I tell you, mate, just quietly, like we get paid to actually pick stocks, the saving and investing bits are phenomenally more important than the stocks you pick. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like if you if you can start, <laughs> if you can save more yeah. and invest earlier, you will smash. Air, I, Doc and I couldn't add enough percentage points of, of return to make up for years of investing or for the amount you invest. Yeah, lost opportunities, lost opportunities. This is, this oh, yeah. is the other thing, phenomenal in life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is actually, here's a life lesson too. Yeah. Uh, uh, we can change this podcast to a life lesson podcast mm. as well. You know, I like right? it. Right? And uh, the life lesson is basically a lost opportunity. Every minute that's lost is lost, right? Yeah. It doesn't come back to us, right, yeah. right? And stuff that you start, you know, things that you can do, you know, tomorrow, you should yeah. do today. Yeah. Things that you think of doing today, you should have actually done yesterday. <laughs> No, so, I, just, I just feel stressed and guilty now. Well, but, but, that, but that is, you know, this, this is so true. Oh, mate, like if I if I know what I know now, and this is, you know, this is a little bit of like, you know, guilt. But if I know oh what God. I know now, if I knew that twenty years ago, it'll be phenomenally different outcomes. Can right? I tell you one worse than that? I knew it twenty years ago. I didn't do it. <laughs> 
that's even worse, right? And I think that's, so if you take anything, life lessons, hashtag life lessons from Doc, um, by all means, absolutely try and get the best possible return you can. That, like that's money for Jam, why wouldn't you? But can I tell you, if you're thinking about, should I invest that money? Should I buy those shares? Should I set up that direct deposit? Should I save a bit more? Should I spend a bit less? Please, for the love of God, help us help you. Whatever you can do, trust me from someone, who, and Doc sounds like the same, for people who've been there, done that, and should have done better, if I could, if I could shake my younger self and say, speaking of SS Commodores, um, you know, if I could spend a little bit less on that cup, man, can I tell you, I probably so inside first job, second job, second full time job, I uh, got a car allowance. Didn't have to spend it on a car, but got a car allowance. So I went car allowance. I guess I can afford that car then. I'll buy that car. I bought myself a whole a, a Volkswagen Passat, which was a beautiful car. And I love it to bits. I, I I have not done the numbers. But had I decided to drive a secondhand Corolla or something and saved that money, invested that money, I am pretty sure by now it's well into the six-figure number that I've done myself out of. And over my life, it's probably a million dollars plus that I'm going to cost myself by buying that car rather than you know, investing the money and driving an old one. Now, we make life choices. I'm not saying don't enjoy life. I'm not saying live like a hermit, have a miserable time so you can retire wealthy but miserable. Um, don't do that. But man, can I tell you, like just the, the mistakes I've made and it's just, it just it kills me, absolutely kills me. I have nothing to add. Can we move on? <laughs> That's why I said, nothing to add. All right. Let's go, let's go to a question from Turninator, uh, regular correspondent. Thank you, mate. G'day, lads. Love hearing the pod as always, but this weekend particularly enjoyed the fiery yet respectful conversation regarding Google's market dominance. Makes for compelling listening. Well, thank you, mate. We um, glad you enjoyed it. Um, Doc and I actually had a fight afterwards. Ended up with a black eye, but you know it's worth it. It's all, all for our listeners. He says anyway. Even as a subscriber to EO, I have my own recommendation for you guys. There we go. It's not a stock pick, however. But as a marketer, he says it's not great to say cheap, but nor is it great to say inexpensive when describing your services. He says as toilet paper is inexpensive, but not incredibly alluring. <laughs> That's very, very I, I cannot disagree with that. I can, okay. All right, here we go. Here's some free advice for us, mate. A bit of a quid pro quo for the recommendations. In my humble opinion, he says, the optimum word to use is incredible value. And as a subscriber, I agree. The price is incredible value given the groundwork and knowledge put into the recommendation. Hope this helps full on. There you go, Doc. Is our new marketing tag phrase, courtesy of Terminator. I love that, and thank you. EO is incredible value. It's not expensive. It's not value. Not cheap. It's incredible value. I love that, and I respect the the um, the suggestion, and I, I lo- it's great, fantastic. It. Thank you very much. <laughs> incredible value. I love it. Although we don't have that value growth thing, so turn it out. If you want to put your thinking cap back on, how do we how do we describe growth that's not value? That's a great question. It's the ultimate quandary. Get get back to work. Get a, get, get, give us something better. <laughs> you, you volunteered to put yourself on a retainer, a zero dollar retainer, uh, giving giving advice to the Motley Fool Money podcast. Yeah. Tell you what, put that in your CV. We're greedy You'll, folks. Well, maybe don't actually. It's probably not great. All right. Question from Jane. Hi Scott. Thanks as always for the fantastic show. Share advisor service and for answering my last question. Read the target unemployment rate. My question this time is about investing for kids. Now, I'm super passionate about this, Doc, and we haven't yet found a solution. And in fact, Jane, that's what Jane's asking. With three little ones, she says, ranging in age from seven months to seven years. Jane, I, I, I know I've got a seven-year-old myself, so um, I, I'm, sure you're, uh, I'm sure it's wonderful. I'm sure it's occasionally challenging. Jane says, we are currently investing with their future education costs in mind and have talked about setting up a separate account aimed at having something to hand them when they're older. The investing for kids question comes up semi-regularly on the show. 
So my question is, would you consider a Motley Fool service dedicated to this cause? Is there an investing style specific enough to justify it? Or would any one of your services do the trick? Thanks again and best wishes, Jane. And she signs off with hashtag, I wish I was a trust fund hippie, which I really quite liked. Um, I did respond in kind with, uh, I wish I was a punk rocker with flowers in my hair. Um, referencing the Sandy Tom song for those who know that song. If you don't, then you're not missing anything here, but a um, bit of fun. I love this question from Jane, Doc, and it's it's. Uh, I, I've I've um, reluctantly mentioned before that this is one of those situations where the old tragedy of the commons. Other people who've tried to 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 screw over, to mess with, to take advantage of the of the tax system have made it stupidly hard to invest for kids because people use kids own names as a way to tax income split and pay less tax. If you pretend your kids were earning money that you were earning for one reason or another, you put the income in their name, they pay no tax. And so the tax department gets ripped off. Um, that was great for those people who did it. It was a bit of a lurk. Frankly, it was it was a loophole they exploited and the government slammed the loophole shut. Unfortunately, what that means is for the rest of us trying to invest for, the, for our kids, the opportunities are pretty limited and, and it's a regulatory limitation as much as it is an investing style limitation. Jane, I'd never rule it out. Um, I don't. I think that's the the problem for me. Largely, is it's not so much a what stocks to pick thing. It's kind of a how to go about buying or so do investing, setting up an investing strategy for kids. Um, that doesn't really lend itself to a service as such. I'm again, not saying we wouldn't do it. I don't. I don't know what we would do and whether we'd have enough and have enough appeal to make it kind of worthwhile for us as a business to do that. Not my call, not Doc's call, but um, just thinking thinking out loud about it. It's it's probably a tough thing to think of. I'd love to do it. Like I desperately love you know, kids and women are my two passion areas for new investors. Uh, there are way too few kids who start too late and plenty of women who don't. Now, Jane, I'm glad you do. So that's awesome. You've you've solved half my problem, at least at least in your case. So thank you. Um, the So the, the, the regulatory issues, the tax issues are a big problem. Um, and it probably does lend itself to certain investing styles and, and options. Um, Kids get taxed on income. I want to say sixty six percent, doc. I think it is over four hundred bucks a year in interest and dividends. Sorry, or both. So that kind of makes it more likely to suggest you want to buy stocks that pay less in dividends, uh, and then probably get more of your your return through capital growth. Arguably, that's probably how you do it. Um, over time, you may though decide that if I can build a portfolio with X thousand dollars and I have to pay a little bit extra in tax on the dividends, but the capital growth is worth it even with the dividends, that's still worth it. And as I say, every time we talk about tax, never, ever, ever try and pay less tax. Always try and pay more tax because you're earning even more money. So if I got to pay a million dollars in tax, that means I've earned a squillion bucks. I'd rather pay a million dollars in tax than a hundred thousand dollars in tax if the, if the if the reality was that I did it because I earned more money. So, um, you know, but always, you know, never pay more tax than you have to, but, but minimizing tax is the wrong wrong question if you want to be wealthy you don't go to your account and say how do i minimize tax you go and say how do i maximize my after-tax income and that lets them deal with both of those things and that's what we're trying to do with the full um that's a bit of a ramble doc i don't have a good answer for jane it makes me sad um i wish the government could find i don't have a good solution either by the way but i wish they could find a way to allow us to invest for kids at a tax effective way without letting people screw with the system and, and basically make it, wreck it for everybody else. That's what they've done. They've, uh, I'm genuinely really, really annoyed at people who've who've taken advantage of the tax system and basically made it harder for the rest of us to invest for their kids. It's, it's It really, really annoys me. I'd, I'd be more forthright, but we want to try and retain a PG rating. Um, it annoys the hell out of me. So that being said, um, I, I, I don't know how we solve your problem, Jane. I think the stocks involved don't need to be any different necessarily unless you want to kind of be a little bit thoughtful about the dividend thing and try and 
overinvest in stuff that pays less in dividends to minimise that tax burden. That would be reasonable, as long as you don't again don't don't lose money on capital growth. Desperately trying to avoid dividends, I'd rather pay tax on dividends than than lose money on capital. So um, be careful you don't you don't go the wrong way there. Um, you want to try and minimise your trading, of course, as you would expect. Um, you want to invest for the long term, as you would expect. Uh, it probably lends itself to. And again, it depends how many stocks you buy, right? Like I've 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 said before, I've uh, helped my sister, and we've literally just got two cup two stocks in her portfolio, and it's Sol Pats and the Nasdaq ETF. Um, I rec- own both of those, by the way. They're both recommendations of ours, and that was because it was a it was a for her kids. It wasn't a, a huge amount of money. They're not going to be adding super regularly, so I wanted to find want to make a brokerage cost effective, um, and I wanted to get some pretty good diversification with a couple of stocks, and that was how we did that. I'm not saying that's the only way you should do it, or even what what you should do. Um, that's what we chose to do because it was just simple and easy. It was in her name. Um, the tax we paid by her and eventually she can give the money to the kids when they're old enough if she wants to do that. So that, that's kind of how we did it for that. Um, yeah, I don't know, Doc. I, 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 I'm talking all over this one because I just I wish there was a better answer. I don't have one. Can I can I prevail on you to solve my problem? I really can't solve this problem. This is, as you say, I think you've covered everything so there's nothing really for me to add. Anything different you would do or are there specific no. things you'd look for? Uh I mean, you know, like, I mean, well, you could set up a trust, mm. right, and and then just invest in stocks that basically do not pay much dividends and yeah. and then just leave it. But, I mean, it's not, I mean, a trust yeah. is a trust. That's the only thing I can think of. It's all expensive unless you've got large amounts of money. Um, current plan against why it just sucks because it shouldn't be that hard for people to put decent amounts of money aside for their yeah. kids. It's just a, it's just terrible. Um Ironically, raising the tax-free threshold um, for everybody made it harder to save for kids because it meant you could, you know, if you've had three kids, you could actually put 60 grand with the tax-free threshold to work. Now, if I was a independent contractor, I got the motley fool to pay me as Scott Phillips Proprietary Limited. Um, I could, you know, I could employ my, my seven-year-old to do 20 grand's worth of work and pay no tax on that. He wouldn't actually do any work, but the government, you know, I could pretend the government that was what happened. That's what people were doing. So when the tax-free, th- tax-free threshold was five and a half grand back in the good old days, there's only so much income splitting you could do. These days you can do a massive amount of income splitting with a large number of kids. Um, that's why it's just so hard. You could, you could literally wipe off the vast bulk of your personal taxation, um, you just try to you know screw the system. And again, you know, people are probably listening to this yelling that you know we pay too much tax and blah blah blah. And I get it, um, but those people really have screwed everyone else, including Jane and myself and Doc and other people who would invest for their kids, um, but find it more difficult now because the tax laws have changed. So maybe maybe you and I should think about how we can make a make a uh, suggestion to the government, maybe Doc, on how we might fix that. But right now, I, I don't know what I would do that doesn't jeopardize the the tax revenue of the country um but also makes it easy enough to invest for, on, on the behalf of the kids maybe there's some sort of structure or something um jay in terms of strategy this is a hard one i think doc and i would probably end up with different strategies because we're different types of investors and so i don't think uh, that there's nothing specifically for kids about my style or doc style i'll, I'll say doc and you may disagree but uh, feel free to that would say you should do doc style because it's for kids or my style because it's for kids i think i would generally say whatever style of investor you are it's. I mean, we just finished talking about that, Doc. It's. It's probably literally. You know, put money away, put it away early, um, invest in the best companies you can find. It, it kind of sounds boring. Like I should have some sort of kids specific answer. Um, but at the end of the day, if you maximise your returns, the rest kind of looks after itself. I think, Doc. Yeah, I think you. You said that. I think. I. I think ultimately, it is. It's not about. It's not the fact that, as you said, not about the kids, right? It's about yeah. the person who's investing on behalf of the kids. Yeah, exactly. Their, exactly. their temperament and their approach that matters the most, not the fact that there is a longer time horizon. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because if you don't have the temperament, then you know the whole time horizon really doesn't matter. Leave it with us, Jane. We'll come up. I, I, I'd love to come up with something. We might. I don't know. I, I can't promise you we'll do anything as a company for this because I, I, you know, we've got business um, objectives and other things. I'd, I'd like to think we come up with something. 
I don't really know what that is yet. So maybe at some point, maybe there's a, maybe there's a report we can do, Doc, or uh, I don't know, something. Anyway. There might be something here, but we'll have, I, I don't know think. what that is. Love yeah. My last question for today, for Sunday, from Tom. Now, originally this would have been directed at me given our past podcast, mate, but you did elect yourself president of podcasts on Friday. So um, that might mean that you're the one he's talking to. Anyway, Tom says, Hi, El Presidente. Huge fan of the podcast and the work you guys are doing to inform new investors. Thank you, mate. Really appreciate that. I had a question, Tom says, regarding the process of voluntary administration for an ASX-listed company. Oh, dear. Unfortunately, I'm a shareholder of Altura Mining, says Tom, which recently entered voluntary administration. And I was wondering, what's the next step for a shareholder in the company? I've seen that Pilbara Mining is looking to acquire Altura, but I'm unsure of how this would affect my position. Thanks for any help. Hashtag get doc on talk. Not if that's supposed to be TikTok or whether we just where they've got get doc on talk is the new it rhymes, I suppose. Right. Get doc so, on talk. Yeah. You right. TikTok yet? No. Instagram. No. WhatsApp? Oh, WhatsApp I actually do use. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, WeChat? No. YouTube. Oh, YouTube I use occasionally. <laughs> Begrudgingly I use it. Yeah, I mean you haven't been posting videos to YouTube? No. Okay. <laughs> You're supposed to be a new age growth investor. You're supposed to be all over this social media stuff. Like, uh, I'm, I've, I did the <laughs> Facebook thing when it was the thing to do. Now, you like Facebook, it's, it's, I've moved on. Yeah. What's the new What's the new thing on social media? I think the new thing is what? I think it's... Probably still TikTok, is it? It's TikTok, I think, yeah. All right. We probably should move on. Let's go <laughs> Let's go to Tom's question. Do you want to grab this one or do you want me to grab it? You can grab it. I get the boring ones, right? Well, it's not boring. <laughs> this, this is a, you know, so he's basically asking, uh, what can you do with his I shares? I money back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Tom, the bad news, mate, is that administration is a form of kind of stasis for a company where uh, they basically acknowledge they can't pay the bills and the administration is a a regulatory kind of structure that allows them to try and sort things out as well as possible. What it basically lets the company do is try and find a buyer, try and find either for the company or for some of its assets uh, to try and collect on whatever debts are still outstanding to the company and then distribute what's left effectively to shareholders if they can't find a buyer. So this is Voluntary administration is, is a path, hopefully, to some sort of future, but the, the some sort of future is tough. Some companies, very few, this, this, is not, this is not liquidation, by the way, this is administration. So what this does, is it says, okay, this is no longer a public company under its own steam. This is now, uh, effectively, a caretaker has been appointed. And the caretaker's job is to try and work out what the best future for the company is. In some cases, very few, unfortunately, some cases have come out of administration having been restructured. So the administrator might say that all its people that, you know, it owes money to, um, they'll say, oh, look, okay, how about how about you take 10 cents, 20 cents in the dollar, we'll cancel the debts, and then Altura can get on and, and keep keep trading. That could happen. Um, <clears throat> I don't know Altura particularly well. Mining companies are unlikely to get out of this one, unfortunately, as going concerns, but it's possible, right? Uh, we've seen retailers in the past actually get out of this. Um, did Oriton manage to squeeze his way out of administration? I can't remember now. Um, the Oriton got eventually sold to someone, right? There you go. So yeah. uh, some some companies do kind of basically pay off their debts, get restructured, and then kind of somehow find some sort of future life. That's possible. Um, they can find someone else to inject some capital into the company for a big shareholding. So they might be able to find someone who wants to come and take a 75% shareholding in the company for some price and then list it back on the ASX. That's possible. It's possible that, as you say, they find a buyer for the assets. Um, they'll buy the company, but better at some sort of fire sale price. Or they might be able to sell individual assets off to try and solve some problems. Um, so you might find that, I don't know, maybe there's a particular a deposit that's worth something, but no one wants to buy the whole company. Um, so they'll try and they'll try and basically recognize as much value as they can. These are corporate caretakers whose job it is to look at all the options and try and maximize the money. Now, the bad news 
is once it's in administration, basically the money being recognised is for the creditors of the company, not for the shareholders. So there's a there's a whole long line of, and this is kind of something we don't talk about very often, Doc, because it's not very super exciting, but super worthwhile. Um, as a shareholder, you are last in line for the proceeds of the company. The company's got to settle all of its debts before the shareholders are entitled to anything. Now, if you're in administration, that's probably because you can't pay your debts, which would tell you exactly there's not going to be much left for the shareholders. And so unless... And let's say let's say the shares were trading for hundred bucks. If it's got one hundred and fifty dollars worth of debt and it can only raise seventy five million dollars, uh, seventy five dollars, sorry, total dollars uh, for the assets, then well, the debt is not going to get paid off, and there's certainly nothing left for the shareholders. If you're super lucky, the, the administrators will get one hundred sixty bucks somehow for it. They'll pay off all of the debts, and there'll be ten bucks left to share among you and your fellow shareholders, which again is not going to be much. So, mate, I've got to be really honest with you. The chance of getting any decent money out of this is pretty small. Um, occasionally shareholders might get you know literally one percent of their shareholding back occasionally you see that sort of thing um the, the good and bad news is there's nothing for you to do there's nothing you can do right now um, you are in line uh, the the administrators are running the company you are in line at the very very end of the line with your fellow shareholders to possibly get some money if there's some left over and if there is some left over they'll split it up basically in proportion to your shareholding which means if you're a small shareholder you're in for you know you might get a tiny set check of a few cents a share if you're super lucky but really really unlikely unfortunately so if i, if I was a betting man mate i would say probably 95 percent of companies in enter administration the shareholders don't get in anything from doc is that too is that too cynical too negative no, that's not negative it's about right, that, right that's about right yeah. yeah so mate that's the bad news um there's probably some investing lessons hopefully you've learned from this as well i, I won't i won't run any parade matter won't make you feel even worse but hopefully um it, it may well be that a tumor might have been hit by an act of God or some sort of un- unforeseen circumstance or it might have always been something that maybe had big promise but but uh, uh, but not a lot of ongoing business. So, you know, maybe some some cause for reflection, hopefully a learning experience for you. Hopefully you haven't lost too much dough, mate. Um, I would expect you'll get nothing from it and if you do, treat whatever you do get as a, as a small bonus. Anything else on that, Doc? I have nothing to add. In the meantime, Tom, next time you're looking for a stock to buy, why don't you join Motley Fool Share Advisor? Like where I said nicely into that ad without anyone realizing. I like it. Smooth, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. So if you do want to join Share Advisor, Tom, or anybody else listening, of course, I mean, why wouldn't you? Go to fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast. Now, I'm not sure what the Terminator would say Share Advisor is also incredible value, but it's an extreme opportunity. So I'm going to assume it's at least pretty good value. Maybe maybe it's not exceptional value, but it's pretty good. Um, In fact, I think it's very good. And certainly we've talked about the returns we've got from those services. So hopefully uh, we've given you enough reason to at least think about joining ShareAdvisor or Extreme Opportunities. If you want to join ShareAdvisor, Andrew Leggett helps me run ShareAdvisor. You can go to fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast and join our merry band of fools at Motley Fool Share Advisor. If you want to join EO instead, and well, not instead, as well, let's say, go to fool.com.au slash EO podcast. We're very very um, cryptic with our naming, aren't we, mate? SA podcast for share advisor, EO podcast for extreme opportunities. Yeah, and you can do both. It's no very easy. No one ever crack the code. You can do both. You, you can do Exactly. Both. It's very easy to do both. I think we might do a, uh, a special deal for Gold Pass soon. What do you reckon? Uh, it sounds like a good idea. So, well, we'll hold that up our sleeve. In the meantime, go to fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast or or and, I should say, fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. Join us at share advisor. Join us at extreme opportunities. Uh, we think you'll get some value for it we certainly do our best to deliver plenty of value for our members at, at what is otherwise as Terminator said 
obviously incredible value. It's incredible. That wraps us up, mate. We're done for this Sunday. But before we go, don't forget, you should and can subscribe to the Triple M Motley Full Money podcast through iTunes, your favourite Android podcast app, or, of course, Podcast One. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating. Five stars would be lovely. Leave us a review. Say nice things if you wouldn't mind. And, of course, make sure you tell your friends. Just... When you finish listening to the podcast, just grab your phone because you're listening to it on the phone now. Grab the phone, call the third person on your contact list. Just just randomly scroll down, hit the button and say, you know what? You should join The Motley Fool and even give them those links. It's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. And valuable. Incredible, valuable. Add awesome. those two together. Does it get any better? No. There you go. Tell your friends, please. And of course, you can get your own dose of foolishness straight to your inbox and some marketing, as I always say, by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. We'll be back next week with another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.